This morning we'd like to go back to the book of the Song of Solomon. The last two messages that we presented to you came from this book, from the first chapter. I'd like to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Because of the sever of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. Draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. Now, if you've read the Bible all the way through, obviously you read the Song of Solomon. If you've never read the Bible all the way through from beginning to end, maybe you have and maybe you haven't. I would encourage you to read this wonderful, beautiful book. When you see the three books that Solomon wrote, he wrote Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. You might wonder, these books are so different. They're, they're unique, but totally different. It seems kind of odd that one man's mind can be in these three different directions, you might say. But on the other hand, it's not difficult at all if you believe in the divine inspiration of the Scripture. Because all the Bible is given divine inspiration, and God's the author of every Scripture. He's the author of these three books. But he used Solomon as a human writer to pin down the words. And one of the miraculous things about the inspiration of the Scripture is that God allows the Bible writers, or allowed the Bible writers, to retain their personality in the writings. And oftentimes their experiences are related in the writings. That's a wonderful blessing. Uh, if you understand, recognize that. So the Song of Solomon is just totally different from Ecclesiastes, totally different from the book of Proverbs. It's a wonderful love story between a man and a woman, a bridegroom and a bride. And it shows the type of love that husbands ought to have for their wives and wives ought to have for their husbands and the kind of love that Christ has for his church, and the kind of love that the church ought to have for her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We find commitment. We find devotion. We find the highest degree of seriousness. We have so many superlatives in this, so many metaphors in this book. But they're all there to show how excellent the love is between these two individuals. As we spoke the first time from verse 2 says let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for thy love is better than wine we emphasize thy love and in verse 3 because of the savour that is the smell of thy good ointments thy name is as ointment poured forth therefore do the virgins love thee we emphasize the importance of that in our last message but we look at verse 4 and we find more emotions we find more feelings being expressed by the bride. She says, draw me and we will run after thee. In other words, bring me closer. She wants to have a more intimate relationship. Draw me closer. How important it is for husbands and wives to draw close to each other with time. They shouldn't grow apart. They should draw closer to one another. The hymn writer says, nearer to thee, my God, nearer to thee. That's what the hymn writer had under consideration. Draw me. Now you'll have a, never have a desire to draw closer to the Lord unless you've had the experience of grace prior to this. 
when the Lord has to draw you. There's no such thing as a person dead in sin drawing nigh to the Lord. He's dead in trespass sins and does not have the capability. Jesus said in John 6, 44, No man cometh unto me, but he that... Uh, but the, no man cometh unto me but except the Father, except the Father which sent me, draw him. And I raise him up again at the last day. Jeremiah 31, 3. I've loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Who's drawing who here? It's God drawing the object of his love, his everlasting love. It is God drawing those who are his children when they could not take a step toward him, he draws them to him in regeneration in the work of the new birth. Then we have verses like James 4, 8, where he says, draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to thee. Get closer to the Lord and the Lord will get closer to you and resist the devil and he shall flee from you. So this desire that's expressed here, she says, draw me, (laughs) bring me closer to you. And we will run after thee. Notice it's draw me, but we will run after you. In other words, whenever you're drawing closer to the Lord, people will see that. They'll see it in your face. They'll see it in your countenance. They'll see it in your expressions. They'll see it in your conduct. They'll see it in the change that you have in your life. When you draw close to the Lord, you can't help but see things differently and feel things differently. And others will see that. And you'll become an influence with others. They'll want to know, well, what is so special about the Lord that you're drawing nigh to? And you have an opportunity to talk to them about it and to tell them about it. So she says, draw me and we will run after thee. And now she addresses him as king. Notice this. The king which brought me into his chambers. The king is answering her request. He's going to bring her into his chambers. This is not something, uh, you know, uh, a carnal thing. This is a lovely spiritual thing. The king has brought me into his chambers. She takes another step closer to him. Her request is being granted. Her request is being answered. It's in his chambers that she will get to know him even better than she's ever known him before. She says, we will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. You know, notice earlier, thy love is better than wine. And now we will remember thy name, uh, thy love more than wine. It says, the king has brought me into his chambers. I want you to think about the Lord this morning as our king. It's important for us to recognize him as the savior of his children, for sure. Recognize him as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. It's important for us to recognize him in many different ways. But this morning, I want us to focus on that one point. The king has brought me into his chambers. When the Lord came in this world, he came in fulfillment of prophecy that prophesied he would come as a king. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, the writer says, Rejoice, O Jerusalem, you daughters of Jerusalem, rejoice, you daughters of Zion. Thy king cometh. Notice, T-H-Y. Thy king cometh. He cometh just and having salvation, meek and lowly, riding upon an ass, the colt, the fold of an ass. That scripture was fulfilled during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We look in Matthew chapter 21, 
And you'll find after the Lord had performed certain miracles, we find where the multitude of people gathered together when they heard that Jesus was going to come into Jerusalem. And they cut down palm branches and put them in his way. And he come riding upon an ass, the colt, the fold of an ass, in fulfillment of Zechariah 9 and 9. Now think about it. We're talking about Jesus Christ as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He didn't come riding in a chariot of gold and silver. He didn't come riding upon a great white horse. He comes riding upon a poor man's travel. He comes riding in, into Jerusalem in a way that's in keeping with his earthly life and earthly character. The Lord Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, a raised in Nazareth, a city despised to look down upon. The Lord Jesus Christ was born in poverty, born to a poor family, Mary and Joseph. Isaiah tells us in the four Gospels verify that he was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is in keeping with his life and his character, is it not, to come riding into Jerusalem in this manner, in this way. He came not to make a great name for himself. And so this scripture is fulfilled. Isaiah chapter 32 and verse 1. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. Now let's take a look. At the, we'll get a profile of this king. Behold, a king shall what? He shall reign in righteousness. There's been multitudes of kings without number that have lived and reigned on this earth, but they did not reign in righteousness. But this king does. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. And a man, this king, and a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind, as a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry land, as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Can you relate to those scriptures? Can you relate to those statements? Has the Lord been as a great rock in a weary land to you? Has he been as waters in a dry place? Has he been a covert from the tempest when the storms of life have come? Has he been that, that covering? Has he been that protection for you? A man should be as a hiding place from the wind, the wind of adversity, the wind of problems that come our way from time to time. But he says a man should be as a hiding place from those things. That's, that's Jesus. He's our hiding place. He's our covert. He's our rivers of water. He's our great rock in a weary land. A king shall reign in righteousness. So he was prophesied to come in this world as a king. He was not prophesied to come in this world to be a king. He was prophesied to come in this world as a king. We look in Matthew 2 and 2, we find where the wise men believed that and understood that. The wise men came from the east, and they came, and here was their question. Where is he that's born king of the Jews? Where is he that's born king of the Jews? Jesus was born the king of the Jews. Now, the Jews didn't recognize him as king. They didn't, but he was born a king. He, didn't, he wasn't born and become a king later on. He was born a king. He was, it, it, the anticipation of his arrival was that he would be a king. Zechariah says he shall come just and lowly and having salvation. So the wise men understood that. Wise men always have. Remember that. Wise men have always recognized Jesus as king. Always have. I look in the book of John chapter 1. There's a man named Nathaniel. And Philip comes to Nathaniel and says, Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses and the prophets did write. And he tells them who it is. He says, is 
Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, what good thing could come out of Nazareth? Again, Nazareth was a city that was despised and looked down upon in that day, yet this is where Jesus grew up. We have found him, Jesus of Nazareth, who Moses and the prophets did speak. And as he's coming, Jesus sees him coming and makes this statement concerning Nathanael. Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. The word guile means hypocrisy. How did the Lord know that? Because the Lord knows everything about everybody. He knows everything about you from head to toe, inside and out, okay? He knows you better than you know yourself. That's for sure. We can deceive ourselves, but Jesus not deceived. He said, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile, that is, no hypocrisy. And Nathanael was taken back by that. He said, How knowest thou me? The Lord said, When thou wast under the fig tree, I saw you. In other words, Jesus saw him before he ever saw Jesus. He knew all about, Nat, uh, last, uh, excuse me, um, Zach, uh, whatever his name is, Nathaniel. <laughs> <laughs> more than Daniel had any information or knowledge of Jesus. He was taken back by that. But when Jesus said, when thou was under the fig tree, I knew thee, what was Nathaniel's response? He said, behold, Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Israel. He acknowledged this man who just revealed this about him was the King of Israel. Did everybody recognize him as that? No, they didn't. You come to John chapter 6, you're going to find where the Lord fed the multitudes of, uh, you know, the 5,000 men besides the women and the children, five loaves and two fishes. And after that miracle, the Bible says, and Jesus knew that they would come to take him by force and make him a king. How can you make somebody something they already are? They couldn't make him a king. He was already a king. But they didn't recognize it apparently. But Jesus knew their motives. He knew what they was coming to do. It wasn't Jesus' uh, uh, desire to, uh, you know, uh, achieve uh, uh, this kind of applause, you might say. So he just disappeared. They didn't recognize it. We come to Matthew chapter 27. And here we find the Lord is before Pilate. And Pilate asked him the question. In verse 11, he asked him the question. Art thou the king of the Jews? Notice Jesus' reply. He says, thou sayest it. That's like saying yes. Sometimes you can say yes, and sometimes you can say no without saying yes, without saying no. I mean, my dad was in the hospital just days before he passed this scene of life, and uh, didn't really know at the time just how close he was, but, you know, they'd bring the food into him in the hospital, and I would say, Dad, you need to eat this. Uh, he, you know, I could tell he, he didn't want it. Uh, I said, you can't get stronger if you don't eat, you need, need to eat this. Do the best you can to eat. And he would say, son, I'd rather not. He was telling me no. That was his nice, kind, courteous way of saying no. <laughs> son, I'd rather not. There's different ways of saying no. There's different ways of saying yes. Jesus says, thou sayest it. That's Jesus' way of saying you're correct. I am the king of the Jews. You say, Brother Lawrence, how, how do you really know that? Well, let's just go a little further. At the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, Pilate will erect a sign above the cross. What's the sign say? The sign says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That's Pilate. Pilate now is convinced he's king of the Jews. But while he's on the cross, you find the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. You'll find these three categories of men among the Jews used oftentimes together because they were in positions of authority. 
We're not just talking about the priest, talking about the chief priest. We're talking about the scribes who are the experts in the law and the elders who were the leaders of the people, the older, mature leaders of the people. The chief priest, scribes, and elders did not believe he was the, uh, the king of the Jews. And so we find where they said, if thou be the king of the Jews, come down from the cross and we'll believe you. And before that, you will find where the soldiers took and put a purple robe upon him, put a reed in his hand and played a crown of thorns and put it upon his head. And then fell at his feet mocking him as the king of the Jews. They mocked him. They didn't believe he was king of the Jews. He was the king of the Jews. And how could he show such great weakness? In their eyes, great weakness. But this was not a sign of weakness. This was a sign of power. And the chief priest and the scribes thought, well, if you're the king of the Jews, then prove it by coming down from the cross. You come down from the cross, and then we'll believe you. So who believed he was the king of the Jews? The wise men did. Who believed he was king of the Jews? People like Nathaniel did. Who believed he was the king of the Jews? It was the common people that heard him gladly. They're the ones who believed he was the king of the Jews. Not the chief priests, not the scribes, not the elders. Even Pilate, that heathen ruler, was convinced that he was king of the Jews. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't come in this world to become a king. The Lord Jesus Christ came in this world as a king already. He was king before he was ever born. Therefore, he was a king when he came into this world. He was born in this world a king. Now, let's go back here to the book of Psalms for a few references this morning. In Psalm chapter 2, or the second Psalm as we might say, and by the way, the Lord quotes from the second psalm and actually identifies it as a second psalm over here in the book of Acts. He identifies Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is about the Lord. It opens up like this, says, The heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth come together. The kings of the earth consult together. And what are they consulting about? They're consulting about a power and authority greater than they are. They say, we shall bust their bands asunder and break their cords that surround us. In other words, they do not want a greater authority over them. This is the kings, plural, the kings here of the earth. How does the Lord receive this? It says, the Lord shall laugh at them. The Lord shall have them in derision. That means in mockery. The Lord sees from heaven. He sees these kings. He sees the heathen. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? He sees the kings uh, coming together. He sees the kings consulting. He sees the kings uh, conspiring against him to break the bands, that is, the rules of conduct and the commandments of God, uh, that is, to guide us and direct us. They don't want that. They want to break them asunder. You see that today, do you not? It says, the Lord shall laugh upon them. The Lord on his throne shall laugh upon them and shall have them in derision, which means in mockery. And the Lord shall say unto them something. What's the Lord say? Verse 6. The Lord said, I will set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. The Father says, my king, that king is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I will set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Here's a specific place. Here's a specific location. Now, what does it mean, Zion? And I want to uh, say several things about that this morning because you'll find this expression, Zion, spelled Z-I-O-N in the Old Testament, spelled S-I-O-N in the New Testament. 
So you find this word both in old and new just spelled differently, Z-I-O-N, S-I-O-N, over here in the new. First time this comes to our attention is in 2 Samuel chapter 5. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, you'll find where David has been anointed king. Remember, the first king was Saul. That was the people's choice, but now we find the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, well, the Father is going to uh, put a, a man uh, over Israel as king and be David, a man after his own heart. After David is anointed king, where he will be reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years down in Jerusalem, when he's anointed king, the first thing that's recorded about him after he's king, he goes up to a hill that's occupied by the Jebusites. That hill is one of the hills in which the city of Jerusalem is built upon. Jerusalem is an elevated place from a natural perspective. That's why when you read things like, uh, you know, the man that uh, uh, went to, uh, up to Jericho, or went, excuse me, down to Jericho, when you see, uh, when you look at the map geographically, Jericho is to the north of Jerusalem. So normally you'd say he went up to Jericho, but he didn't say that. He didn't say it for two reasons. First reason is Jerusalem, even though it's to the south, is higher elevation. When you left Jerusalem, you travel down. The second reason is because Jericho was in opposition to Jerusalem, which was the city of God. We find over here in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, where the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching his disciples that they should let their word be yea and nay. And they should swear not by heaven, which is God's throne, nor by the earth, which is his footstool, nor by the city of Jerusalem, which is the city of the great king. Now, let's just pause for a second. And what have we learned about this king? We've learned that he reigns in righteousness. We learned he's a reigning king, right? We learned here that he's a great king. In the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, excuse me, let's go to chapter 1, verse 17. Paul says, Now unto the king eternal, invisible, immortal, be praised forever and forevermore. Now unto the king, what? Eternal. He's an eternal king. Unto the king, immortal. He's an immortal king. Unto the king, invisible. He's an invisible king. He's the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, a reigning king, and a great king, and a king that came riding in Jerusalem upon an ass, the colt and the fold of an ass, just and lowly and meek and having salvation. That's what we know about him at this point, correct? All right, the Lord said, I will set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. David would go do battle against the Jebusites there on this particular hill and he will conquer the Jebusites and that hill will be called Zion from that time forward, Mount Zion and David, it will call it the city of David. Now it's right adjacent to where the city of Jerusalem is at. Now this term, Zion, occurs over 160 some times in the Bible. It starts off in 2 Samuel 5, and then you're going to read that expression many, many times in the Bible. So anything's mentioned that many times, you know it's very significant for a reason. You ever paid attention how many churches you pass by and see a sign, and they'll have the word Zion in it? Down in Alabama, there's a church I've preached at called Zion's Rest. Why would they name a church that? Another church I've preached at a number of times is called Zion's Hill. Why would they call the church that? That church is in an association of churches called the Mount Zion Association. Why would they choose that name? You know, it's the name of their association, Mount Zion Association. Zion's Rest, Zion's Hill, 
because the word Zion is very significant in the Bible, both in the Old and also New Testament. I want you to be thinking about that because uh, Zion in the Old Testament is just really a picture of the Lord's gospel church and kingdom here in the New Testament. All right, he says, I will set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. He's going to put his king in a particular place in the holy hill of Zion. In Psalms 133, it says, The Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. Zion is the habitation of God. Zion was chosen by God. Zion is where God is going to set his king upon his holy hill, his holy hill of Zion. We come to Psalms 48. The psalmist says in the opening verse of Psalms 48, Great is the Lord. And greatly to be praised in the city of our God. All right, God is great. He's greatly to be praised. Greatly praised in the city of our God. He then says, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. Where is joy found? It's found in Mount Zion. All right, here's this special place. Joy is found in Mount Zion. He then tells us in that 48th Psalm to do some things concerning Mount Zion. Says, walk about Mount Zion. Mark you well her bulwarks, count her towers and the palaces thereof. He's talking about an Old Testament type city that had walls around it, and on those walls are bulwarks. A bulwark was a structure on the wall where you, the soldiers would get behind so they could sling their, their arrows and or shoot their arrows and sling the stones at the enemy that was approaching, also stand, get behind it for their protection. All right, mark ye well her bulwarks, count ye her towers, again, structures uh, for fortification on the wall. Consider her palaces. There's things about this, and here's why you to do that, that you may tell it to the generation following. Parents, you have a responsibility of telling your children about Mount Zion. You have a responsibility of telling your children the significance of it, the beauty of it, the meaning of it, the significance of it, the importance of it. How important is the church? I'm going to tell you, I was blessed to be raised among the old Baptists. I was blessed to be raised in the primitive Baptists, and it was never any doubt in my mind how my mother and father, what they felt about the church. There was no question in my mind, they considered the church to be the most important thing in their life. They were faithful to it. They were dedicated to it. They were committed to it. They never missed. We drove an hour plus for years of my life as I was growing up to get to the house of God. We went home with people after church and had lunch with them and spent the afternoon talking about the Lord. Or we had people come to our house doing the same. There was never any question, never any doubt in my mind concerning their love for the Lord, the love for His church. That His church was first and foremost in their minds, in their hearts, in their lives. I thank God for that blessing today. It rubbed off on me. It had an influence on me. In my early days, I didn't see the, see the need of I didn't understand how we lived the furthest away. It had to be the first at church. We lived the first way. It had to be the last to leave. <laughs> I didn't understand that. We got a long way to go, Dad. I got a ball game this afternoon with my friends I'm trying to organize. I'm ready to hit the trail. Oh, no. We're the last to leave. Of course, my dad was a deacon in the church and very faithful. Thank God for that. And though we live the furthest away, we're the first ones there. 
Why is that? Because his love for the church was there. He wanted to be there early and stay late. Never any question about it. That's the way our lives ought to be led in front of our children. That the church is the most important thing. It's not just an important thing. It's the most important thing. It's more important than the activities of life. It's the most important thing. Here you honor the Lord when you come here. In Psalms 50 and verse 2, he says, For out of Zion, it says, it's the perfection of beauty. Here's another thing about Mount Zion where God has put his king in his holy hill of Zion. Out of Zion cometh the perfection of beauty. The things of God are beautiful. The things of God are perfect. We don't preach an imperfect God or an imperfect work. We preach a perfect God who did a perfect work. Hebrews 10, 14 says, Wherefore, boy, and offer, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Everything about the Lord is that of perfection. It's the beauty, my friends. The perfection of God clearly shines in a place called Mount Zion. Psalms 87 and verse 2 says, The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. If you don't understand what the word Zion means, that verse doesn't mean a hill of beans to you, does it? So let's think about it just a moment. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion. Why the gates of Zion? Because gates are, is, is what allows you to enter into, right? And the gates of Zion was where the people entered in to get up to Mount Zion, to come up and worship God, to come up to Mount Zion, to walk about Zion. They count the towers thereof and consider their palaces and look upon the bulwarks of Mount Zion. You've got to come through the gates in order to be able to do it. In the Old Testament day, gates represented places where the leaders of the, of the community in the city met to conduct business. It was an important place. That's where Mordecai overheard the plot, remember? He was at the gate of the city, overheard the plot of the two men that was going to try to, you know, conspire to assassinate the king in that day. It turned out to be an extremely important event in the life of Mordecai. He was at the gate, Proverbs chapter 31, because then the virtuous woman says, uh, her children shall rise up and call her blessed, and her husband shall praise her where? In the gates. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Here's the place of entrance where people come in to go up where? To Mount Zion. A special place, if you please. That's why David said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Just be a doorkeeper. We got a couple of pretty good doorkeepers here, don't we? And Brother Mike and Brother Eddie, they're pretty, two pretty good doorkeepers. You know why they like to be doorkeepers? First of all, they feel like they want to serve the church. That's why. They see themselves as servants of, of God and want to serve the church. But it's their delight to find a place for you to sit. <laughs> Didn't have to used to do that, but we're kind of having to do that now. Find you a place to sit that enables them to get to see you and talk to you and bump elbows with you. <laughs> uh, they get to greet everybody. Uh, they get to engage and interact to what extent they can. Uh, it's, it's a joy to them to be able to do that. I know it is. And you ought to express your appreciation to them for taking on this. It might seem like a simple thing, but I'm telling you, my friend, it's important we have people that care. And they care. David said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. The Lord loves the gates of Zion, the entranceway to Mount Zion, the entranceway to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves it more than all the dwellings of Jacob. After the Lord dealt with Jacob when he was fleeing from his brother Esau, and the Lord appeared to him in a dream and saw that ladder extending from earth right into heaven. 
from that time forth when God made himself known unto Jacob. Jacob's life reversed. His life turned around. His life became totally different. And in his dwellings, he honored God. From that time forth, he would honor God. But here he says, God loves the gates of Jacob more than all the dwelling places of, of, loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. We know the Lord loved Jacob. Romans chapter 9, verse 11, 12 tells us, right? But God loved Jacob <laughs> and hated Esau. And he loved the dwelling places of Jacob all right because when Jacob honored him, he honored Jacob. But there was something honored in light even better. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than the dwelling places of Jacob. How is it in your life, my life today? Do we see something beautiful about this place? This is a place where God is, you know, uh, proclaimed to be great and greatly to be praised. A place that we admire and walk around. You know, people uh, on their bucket list, they always want to go to some city, see some city. I want to go to New York City. I don't understand that. They call it the Big Apple, but I've been caught in the rotten apple for a long time. And then people want to go to Paris. I'm, I'm not against all that, brother. I'd probably go too if you'd pay for my ticket. <laughs> but the most beautiful city in all of time, my friends, is the one I'm talking to you about this morning. It's Mount Zion. Here's where you see the beauty of the Lord, the beauty of his love, the beauty of his compassion, the beauty of his promises. A place called Mount Zion. I come to the 99th division of the Psalms. 99.1. And it starts off like this. The Lord reigneth. Let the people tremble. The Lord reigneth. The Lord sits between the cherubims. The Lord is great in Zion. It's in Zion you see the greatness of God. It's in Zion you see him as a great deliverer. It's in Zion you see him as a great shepherd of the sheep. It's in Zion that you see him as the great shepherd you see. He dwells between the cherubims. That's a picture, you know, the tabernacle where you had the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat covered the Ark of the Covenant. And on each end was two cherubims and they, they stretched forth their wings and they touched, they pointed to the mercy seat which was God's dwelling place when he came down from heaven. He says, the Lord is great where the Lord is great in Zion. Now, God's great everywhere, but it's in Zion that it's magnified. It's in Zion where he gets recognition for it. I want God to be recognized today as a great God. I want God to be recognized here in this place as being omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. I want God to be recognized as a savior of sinners. I want God to be recognized as one who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmity. He's great in everything about it, is he not? I wish I had the vocabulary to tell you how great God is. No matter how great I try to tell you he is, he's greater than that. I just, I'm just limited. <laughs> I, I, if I try to tell you how good God is, he's more goodlier than that. <laughs> just, I, I just, I'm restricted, I'm limited in those kind of things. But your experience would teach you that, right? Now, Psalm 125, verse 1. They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion which shall abide forever as the mountains round about Jerusalem. So the Lord is round about his people. The mountains around Jerusalem served as a fortification, as a defense for the city of Jerusalem. And just like those mountains around about Jerusalem, the Lord is about his people. I want you to have a deeper appreciation for this word when you read it. Mount Zion, the city of the living God. 
Let's go to Psalms 137. You find this psalm opens up where Israel has been taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And said, when we were by the rivers of Babylon. Now notice where they're at. When we were by the rivers of Babylon, we wept when we remembered Zion. When they remembered the benefits of Zion, the blessings of Zion. And they no longer could enjoy those blessings because they had been taken away in captivity because of their own disobedience as far as that's concerned. And they're in a place called Babylon. They're out of place. They're in a place where they're out of place. You know, uh, everything's out of place in this day and age, isn't it? Everything is out of place. There's an old adage, a place for everything and everything in its place. I know brethren who've got every tool that's ever been made by mankind. And you go in the garage or the barn to find it, it'd be nice if you could just find it, but you can't find it because it's all in there, just don't know where it's at. Some people think there's a place for everything and everything should be out of place. And we're out of place in the world. We're out of place in America today, big time. In every way that you can think about. We're just simply out of place and Israel's out of place. They're not in Zion. They're not in the city of David. And then the people of Babylon, they said, they were required of them to sing us a song of Zion. I don't know why they'd make that request. Maybe they'd heard about it. Maybe they'd heard, you know, somehow or another that you, boy, if you want to hear her singing, you need to go to Zion and hear them sing there. They, they said, let us hear a song of Zion. And they said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? But then I'm going to tell you what, I guarantee you, you'll never sing Amazing Grace any better, any more spiritual than you are when you're in Mount Zion. You may sing it in other places. It won't be like it is right here in the house of God. Zion has her own special category selection of hymns. Amazing Grace is our theme song, isn't it? <laughs> Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. Poor, weak, and worthless though I am, I have a rich, almighty friend. Hungry, faint, and poor. Grace is a charming sound. That's just a sampling of the songs of Zion, brethren. I tell you, you know, we had a, a couple of ladies that came here uh, several weeks back. It's uh, there where they went to church, not far from here, and not opened back up, and I guess they, they'd heard about us, that we were meeting and whatever. And they came and I talked to them afterwards. I uh, talked to them on the phone and they could not be more complimentary of their visit than they were when they came here. Uh, they complimented you on your love. They complimented you on your friendliness and everything. And they commented about these hymns that were sung. They said, we don't hear those hymns anymore. They've been replaced but things appear, appeal, uh, you know, to a man's nature more than it does to the Spirit of God on the inside. Says, well, that's the hymns we grew up upon. That's the hymns we miss, you know, where we're at. And the gospel, they said, the message couldn't have been any better. <laughs> you know, I just said that we got a place for them right here if they just understand and recognize it. Those songs of Zion... That's why we're told in Colossians 3.16, teaching, admonishing one another in hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord, saving grace in your heart to the Lord. When you sing, what a friend we have in Jesus, you ought to mean it, my friends. You ought to be able to relate in your own heart. Uh, yes, he's been my friend, through thick, my friend through thick and thin. 
He's been my friend in the nighttime. He's been my friend in the daylight. He's been my friend on the mountains. He's been my friend in the valley. He's never left me nor forsaken me. He's taken me by the hand and brought me through the waters. They have not overflowed me. I've been in deep waters, but they didn't overflow me. I've been through the fires of affliction, but they didn't kindle against me. God was my shield like he was with the Hebrew children in that fiery furnace. He was heated seven times hotter than normal, but my friends, Jesus was there in the midst of it. And Jesus took care of him. Jesus was their shield. Jesus was their covering. <laughs> that fire couldn't be hot enough to, to get between Jesus and the Hebrew children. Here's where you have such rich experiences in Zion. Mount Zion. Look in Isaiah chapter 33 and verse 20. He says, look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities. Oh, here's a place of seriousness. Now, I don't like to see people come to church with their chin uh, dragging the ground. I sure don't. I don't like to see people come to church and if I didn't know any difference, I thought they'd be Francis a talking mule. I mean, just got that long face, you know. I understand. (laughs) Uh, Some people, you can tell how they're doing just looking right at their face. It, It reveals everything. I believe in the house of God, we got an opportunity to come with a big smile on our face, right? Uh, here is the great Lord, and great to be praised uh, in this house right here. But at the same time, it's not a place uh, where we should uh, have a frivolous attitude. It's not a place where we don't take seriously. We should uh, desire to be in our, ha- in our seats on time. We should desire to sing from our hearts to the Lord. We should desire, my friends, to be uh, in harmony one with another when prayer is offered and give our full undivided attention to the gospel preacher when he's trying to bring forth a message or try to help you along life's pathway. Look upon Zion, the city, the city of our solemnities. It says it's a place Whereas their tabernacle, they should not be taken down. The cord should not be broken. To, and uh, the stake should never be removed. See, a, a tabernacle is made to be removed. A tabernacle is made to be put up and taken down and put in a new location, be there temporarily, be taken down, moved to a new location. But here's one, brethren, that will stay here till the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a stake will be removed, not a cord shall be broken. It should be in just a place of broad rivers and streams. Uh, that's just a glorious, beautiful picture to me in my mind of broad rivers and streams uh, to water the, the parks and, uh, and dry souls of the people of God here in this world. Look upon Zion. Take a look upon her. Look upon her. In the 50th chapter of the book of Jeremiah, it says, In that day, shall the inhabitants of Israel and the inhabitants of Judah, they shall come together and they shall come weeping. Notice this. They're weeping. They're living this world. And this world brings tears of sorrow and heartache. And they're weeping, but they're doing something else. They're asking the way to Zion. (laughs) They're asking the way to a place they've heard about called Zion. And if you find a, a child of grace, a child of God out here that's hungering and thirsting for the truth, hungering and thirsting for something to satisfy their soul, that they've not found where they've been, I'm telling you, you need to be able to point them to Zion. <laughs> I'm just kind of reminding now of the, of the experience of Brother Rick and Brother Tony. If you don't mind me saying just a word or two about it this morning. They both work for NES. And 
had conversations from time to time about the Lord and the church and the Bible and things. And, and Brother Rick, if I understand correctly, you expressed your dissatisfaction with where you'd been and the things you'd received and, and one thing and another. And Tony said, well, you need to come where I go. <laughs> need to come where I go. And, and he tells him some things about it. And I understand Brother Rick said, oh, that, uh, there's nobody exists like that anymore. <laughs> Well, just come and see Brother Rick. Brother Rick came and saw, brought Angie with him. They've been here ever since. Do you know how to tell somebody to get here? I'm not talking about the physical address. <laughs> Do you know how to tell somebody how to get to Zion when they're asking the way to Zion? Do you know how to tell them how to get there? One of the best ways to do is just, just come and see. Just come and see. In the book of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, the apostle gives us a sharp contrast between Mount, uh, uh, the Old, Old Testament, uh, Mount uh, whatever, and Mount Zion over here. <laughs> anyway, here's a sharp contrast between the two. He says, for you've come unto where? You've come unto Mount Zion, the city of the living God. You come unto Mount Zion, notice the city of the living God, to an innumerable company of angels, unto a people whose names are written in heaven, to the judge of all the earth, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. I think you're getting a glimpse now of glory itself. Getting a glimpse of heaven itself. Mount Zion represents heaven on this earth right here. That's why we sing that hymn, we're marching to Zion. You can be looking that up, Brother Junior. We're marching to Zion. Why would we march to Zion? It's got to mean something. If you're marching somewhere, it's got to mean something, does it not? It means here's where God has his habitation. Here's where the perfection and beauty shines forth. Here's where you see the king reigning, my friends, in righteousness. Here's the place where you see the meek and lowly lamb coming into Jerusalem. And he's just in heaven's salvation. He had salvation. He obtained salvation. He secured salvation. He saved his people from their sins. And you never get tired of hearing the old glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and singing the wonderful hymns, my friends, that reflect our experiences in life. We're marching to Zion. I want you to know you're in Zion. You're in Zion. The king brought him into my chambers, or his chambers. There she had a, a better view, a better experience of the riches of her fellowship with the one that her soul loved so dearly. We're marching to Zion. Come through the gates of Zion, where God loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Come sing the songs of Zion. And I close in Isaiah 52, 7, where it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him. Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
How beautiful from the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth glad tidings, that publishes salvation, that bringeth glad tidings of good things, that publishes salvation. See, the church is where you have, have the publication of salvation, <laughs> the declaration of salvation. It's not a place where you come to get saved eternally. It's a place where you come to hear about how you are saved eternally by the God of glory and the Savior of sinners. Here's where salvation is published. It says, for thy God reigneth. I'm telling you, if the Lord's people ever need to hear about their God reigning, it's just today. It is today. Hymn 484. We select that hymn. Anyone?